Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program's called Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Special guest today, Ms. Leah Kajavi, who is going to be speaking to her field of expertise and her background, senior finance executive, the type of personality who is needed to make the economy grow and prosper. Welcome to Seldom Said, Leah. Thank you, Robert. It is certainly our pleasure. I'm sure the listening audience will enjoy it. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you this time and place? Sure. Um, and again, thank you uh, for giving me this opportunity. And it is indeed a pleasure of mine as well to be on your program. It is um, our pleasure indeed. Thank you. Uh, in terms of uh, just some personal background, I was born and raised in Iran. Uh, I was French educated. I attended the Lycée Razi in Tehran from kindergarten to 10th grade. Um, in early 1978, my parents decided to send my sister and me to the U.S. to finish high school and um, basically use that as a transition to, uh, to get into college and attend college in the, in the United States. Uh, my father thought the U.S. offered the best education in the world, not to mention that it was also the land of freedom and opportunity. So in the summer of 1978, along with my sister, who was a year and a half older than me, we packed our suitcases to come to America to attend the Shifty School in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Our intention was to come here to study and go back for summers and eventually return home to make our life in Iran, uh, but August, uh, August 19, uh, 1978 was indeed the last time that I saw my country. Uh, the revolution of uh, 79 uh, was a major, major turning point uh, in my life and uh, many Iranians of all ages and backgrounds. Um, having left everything behind, friends, family, and belongings, I had to make a new life in my adopted country. Uh, my father, who had lived through the atrocities and losses of World War II, would always remind me, even when I was a young girl in Iran, that I shouldn't and I cannot depend on anyone else, whether it's my father, husband, etc., and especially not on material aspects of life. They can disappear overnight, he would say, and that education is the most important asset I could ever possess, and I need to stand on, on my own two feet. So education and independence are the two key words that stick to my mind when I think of my father, whom I adored and respected. He and my mom sacrificed everything they had in Iran to remain with my sister and me in the U.S. after the revolution. And I had this huge moral obligation and conscience to do as my parents wanted, and frankly, I had no other choice. If I wanted to make it here, I had to follow their advice. So I attended Brown um, University with a Bachelor of Science in Applied Math, Economics, and a BA in French Literature. I did well in college. I was a very good student. Um, I was magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. So in 1984, after I graduated from Brown, I came to Wall Street, uh, which was the beginning of my very long-term career in, in finance. Solomon Brothers um, was the place where I started uh, my finance career, and then uh, I went to Columbia Business School, 
uh, followed by 23 years at Morgan Stanley, where I um, I was um, uh, in the institutional banking as well as the wealth management platforms at Morgan Stanley. Um, and then I spent four years uh, um, on the buy side uh, with an investment firm called Ice Canyon as its chief operating officer. And I've had a few years of break in here and there between my um, my professional career. So that's kind of a overview of my background. Um, if that's sufficient, I'm just going to stop here and let you um, comment or ask uh, follow-up questions. Given the number of people who apply to Brown, and I've had some experience mentoring students in application, you involved yourself in a really high-intensity, elite educational environment. What preparations did you format within yourself to excel at that level? Uh, you're talking about my experience at Brown? Your experience uh, in education. You certainly did not find yourself in scenarios that were uh, not academically competitive. Right. So I, I think uh, I had a um, very strong uh, uh, foundation in terms of my education. Having gone to the French, you say, in Iran, and the French system is very rigorous. Um, so uh, I, I already had a very strong foundation, especially as it came uh, to science and math. And uh, when I came to this country, interestingly enough, um, I did not speak any English, and it was something that I had to kind of learn quickly in order for me to survive, finish high school, and, and end up um, in college. But it was really a, a combination of having a strong foundation um, to begin with, but also really, um, you know, working hard. I mean, I realized when we came here and based on the, my upbringing um, and the advices that both my parents were critical in giving us, uh, that education was so important in anyone's life. Everything else you can potentially lose. Uh, one thing you cannot lose is what you have in your head. And, and, and that is the biggest investment and the biggest asset I could ever have. So I worked really, really hard um, to do well in high school, I graduated with very, very um, high grades. Basically, I was a trainee student uh, from from high school, and I was um, admitted to a number of very um, highly competitive uh, colleges. I chose Brown over the other choices because I just fell in love with the Brown ethos, the culture, the interdisciplinary approach to education, um, and the fact that uh, it had you know, it didn't have a core curriculum like many other universities, and it basically allowed the student to to carve it, his or her own path uh, of education. So you really need to be quite self-disciplined in order to be to be the architect of your uh, architecture of your own education at that very early um, um, stage in your life. And I think I had the maturity and the, the resilience and the drive to really be able to take advantage of that. And as a result, I was able to, as I mentioned, major in two subjects. One was applied math economics, where I got my Bachelor of Science degree, and then in French literature um, as a, a Bachelor of Arts. And that actually came pretty easy to me, having uh, really had that French education as my background. I must say, uh, speaking personally, at Brown University is... A personal favorite. Uh, there's something about the the quad, not so much the town, which closes at midnight, 
but the idea of the place and the way they approach academics, intriguing. Was there a moment in this planning process of yours, Leah, an epiphanal moment, a Damascus moment, where you decided what you wanted to do and then began applying with that focus in mind? Uh, if you're referring to pretty much my career in finance... Indeed, um, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I did not have a like an epiphany moment that I decided I should go into finance because it was something that was so important or interesting to me. I really honestly did it partly because of necessity. Um, I, I went into finance because my quantitative background uh, was conducive to that kind of an environment. You really needed to be analytical and you needed to have math. Uh, that, that those kinds of majors really helped with, with starting in investment banking. Uh, but frankly, it was also one of the highest paying jobs. And I had to support myself after all. So um, I went to Solomon Brothers um, as uh, it was one of the uh, preeminent uh, fixed income and investment banking um, platform uh, in 1984. Um, so I joined uh, Solomon Brothers in fixed income um, uh, bond market research, uh, and um, I, I learned a lot. Uh, and uh, But at the same time, after two years of being there, I was ready to quit. Uh, it was highly male-dominated. Uh, the trading floor was a rough uh, kind of an environment, and I was still culturally not used to this kind of a rough and tough environment where sexual slurs and, frankly, discrimination were the norm, not the exception. Uh, so after two years of being an analyst at Solomon, I applied to business school to open up my, uh, my kind of my career horizon. Um, and that uh, I left uh, Solomon thinking I was not going to go back to, to finance. Um, I chose Columbia Business School. Not only was a great education, but also being in the city, I had to. Uh, I had the opportunity to still work uh, part time, uh, uh, but I was also hoping to find other industries that would be of interest to me. Um, I was heavily recruited for uh, during the summer between my first and second year in business school uh, for uh, various Wall Street uh, jobs, consulting firms, and other large corporations who had MBA entry positions. But as I was going through all of those interviews, I realized that I was gravitating towards the finance jobs because it was really my natural interest. So I ended up accepting an offer with Morgan Stanley as a summer associate, and the rest was history. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, I stayed with Morgan Stanley for 23 years um, where I made my career. So the problem wasn't finance, after all. It was Solomon's male-dominated environment. And... I'm sure you're very familiar with Michael Lewis and his book, Liar's Poker. I really lived through, through those years um, myself while I was at um, Solomon. Uh, but again, uh, having said all of that, I think Solomon gave me a pretty strong foundation in understanding capital markets, especially fixed income. And if it wasn't for that experience, um, I probably wouldn't have ended up at Morgan Stanley a firm which I loved, um, and it's still very near and dear to my heart, and I spent 23 years of my life there. Um, so um, that, that's kind of like how I went into finance. And uh, to give you a little bit more background is as to why I loved it uh, and why finance became my passion, um, it was really because I was able to use my strong quantitative and ana analytical skills 
along with my more creative side, to, to actually create innovative capital market products and coming up with solutions to clients' complex financing and investment uh, problems. So that was something where I, I found it to be very kind of tactical uh, and, and, um, and strategic in the sense that I was able to help clients to solve problems in a very um, real way. Um, and so that was uh, w- one reason that I, I got into finance and stayed in finance. Um, and um, so that that's kind of uh, uh, kind of the main kind of maybe that was the epiphany when I realized that I could actually use my quantitative skills along with my kind of creativity to come up with interesting capital markets products. But you know I can go on and talk about some of the other skill set that I developed over the years uh, that actually made me even more successful as as, as being a banker and a person in finance, but maybe I'll just stop there and let you kind of comment on what I've said so far. It's intriguing to listen to you speak of your multifaceted background. There's a marvelous book. uh, I'm not sure if it's as popular as it once was, what I didn't learn in Harvard Business School. Would you posit or take the position that what one learns on the spot, and given the glass ceiling, which does exist, there are cracks in it, but we still have a long way to go, that that is the key to success, particularly in the financial field, the experiential moments you spend with somebody who's been there? I mean, absolutely. I think having a strong um, educational background, and if you look at it right now, it is, it, 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 it's so hard to get any of these uh, Wall Street jobs these days, and you really have to be the top of your class from the top universities to get in. But at the end of the day, what really keeps you there and makes you progress is what you really learn on the on the job. And so much of it is not just even the, the product skills or the market skills that you you obtain by being in that environment. It's a lot of the soft skills that you develop by being in that kind of an environment, whether it's, you know, dealing with clients, dealing with people internally, understanding um, the commercial aspects of a transaction while keeping in mind the risks that you may be in, 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 uh, you, you may be um, uh, facing. And those risks may be market risk, it could be franchise risk, it could be client risk, it could be legal, it could be operational. So you really learn about so many different aspects of doing business. And it's not necessarily just finance, it could be any business. You learn all of that by, through that experiential kind of experience as you were, you were mentioning. So, um, so, just to kind of expand a little bit on that in terms of my own experience, while, you know, I, I was, you know, I love the results-oriented nature of the work that I did and the direct impact it was having on the global capital market, I couldn't really also have done any of that without, uh, you know, obviously my education was important, but having the work ethics, which includes working hard, paying attention to detail, having, you know, stamina, being tough-skinned, all of those are really kind of necessary but not sufficient in order to excel in what you do. And as I was, you know, doing my job and very early on in my career, I 
quickly realized that not only my plant and like product skills made me good at my job, but also, as I was saying earlier, having really strong people skills, both in managing people internally and externally, in terms of building teams of talented people, developing and retaining those talents are equally, if not more important. Uh, one of the things that I discovered earlier on was that I was never afraid to hire people who were even smarter than me. I would train them, I would empower them with responsibilities, and by delegating, I would give myself room to move up and expand the business. So having a strong commercial instinct and a good sense for building businesses from scratch and expanding them were, were also natural to me. And those are things that, you know, it, it's, it's a combination of nature and nurture, but I think it, it really, you, you need to have those skills either um, inherent in you or develop it over the years to really become successful in, um, in, in finance. Um, so, I mean, I can say I was promoted on time and early, even early, every step of the way, and uh, I made managing director uh, at the end of 1997 while I was still pregnant with my first child. And I can, you know, tell you a little bit about, you know, raising a fam- getting married and raising a family, and you can do all of that, but it's not easy while you're, you're a you know, hardcore investment banker. But I, I'm, I'm very proud of the journey I had at Morgan Stanley from developing my initial brand as the expert in my field when I was a junior associate to leading many important businesses at the firm when I was senior managing director. There are many uh, mathematical and analytical programs that posit the premise that the answer has to be. When you say smarter, you weren't afraid or reticent to hire smarter people are you talking about people who not only have the academic acumen, but the persons who are willing to be innovative and creative? Absolutely. And I, I think it's really important in, in any business, and it's not just, frankly, in, in finance, any, any business that you either own or you're part of, you have to be able to kind of think strategically and have a long-term vision for the business and try to develop it in a way that has access to resources, both human and capital, that makes it the best. And and I think being if you're strategic and if you have a vision and you're a great leader, you should not be afraid of hiring the best, bringing on the best resources, whether human or capital resources, financial resources, to do that to do that job. And so for me, it was always about bringing the best candidates, the best um, uh, employees to, to the business, uh, and always also focusing on the diversity. And I think um, that is actually a very important point. Being a woman myself and being leading many different businesses, I was able to actually attract a lot of diverse candidates, whether it was, you know, whether they were female or they were from different parts of the world or they had different sexual orientation. I think creating a diverse workforce was a huge advantage. And it, it, for me, it was always hiring the best and the smartest. And and having that it's, and not having a, a very narrow, narrow view and lens of what that means uh, always helped me in building some of the best teams uh, on Wall Street in terms of the business that I was needing. So 
Um, I think um, that that's really important to have the vision to build a business uh, that has a potential for for growth, but also bringing it uh, the best resources, irrespective of where they come from. You use the word strategic, Alea. When one considers the way national interests and business are interrelated today, I'm rather reminded uh, of a traditional phrase, uh, je suis un citoyen de le monde. Do you figure that, feel that perhaps business is an international commodity and the nation in and of itself, and that's the way one has to look at it, not as American, not as British, not as Chinese, but as simply business? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in globalization. I'm a, I'm a big globalist myself. So I, and I have, I've seen it in action, at least in, the, in terms of the businesses that I've been involved with in finance. You, you have to look at it globally. You have to look at where you find the best talent and the most efficient use of capital uh, to create um, to, to create that that capital market and access to to uh, to funding. Uh, whether it's you know whether it, it's the sources uh, being coming out of Asia and the application is in let's say, in, uh, in, uh, in the Middle East or in Europe or in the U.S., it doesn't matter. You've got to let the capital flow wherever it, it, it is the most uh, efficiently being sourced and used. So uh, in my opinion, you, you know, you, I, I, do, I do believe hugely in the, in the fact that it, it has to be a global business. It's not um, regional. It's not nationalistic. And, of course, you've got to protect certain interests, but at the end of the day, um, it's really about a, a global economy. There are those who take the position that learning is one thing and learning innovatively and in regard to application is quite another. Do you feel that with a basis and a background of statistical studies, mathematical studies, something precise, you can teach a new entrance into the field, creativity? Can creativity be taught, shared, understood, so someone can build on what you light a fire in them for? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think it can be taught to a certain extent. Uh, it really becomes a, more of a mindset, and I can speak that, uh, to that from experience. Uh, when I was at Morgan Stanley, I was always in, 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 in new product areas and w working on innovative solutions. So, but I think your mind can get trained that way because I had, uh, leaders in my group and other senior people that I could look up to who were having that mindset. And so you can definitely learn it, but I think you, you also need to have an open mind. Um, and I think knowledge is very important. You have to be very knowledgeable about what's going on, and I think that's why globalization and having a global mindset is very helpful because you have to be able to kind of look at what's out there and figure out what is the best solution that you can come up with using both quantitative stuff as well as more creative stuff. 
Uh, and we used to do that day in and day out. I remember at Morgan Stanley, we were one of the first people, um, actually one of the first firms who were having using emails. And now I'm dating myself. I'm going back to 1987, 88. We were one of the first teams on Wall Street who were using, first of all, we had a global presence. We had our team. We had people in New York, in London, in uh, Hong Kong, and in Japan. And we used to communicate on a very regular basis through email before even email was fashionable uh, to figure out how we can, for instance, we had a client, let's say, in the U.S. that had certain needs. We were trying to source the, 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 that need um, to different areas, whether it came from our London uh, office or through the capital markets in, in Europe or it came through through um, Asia, through Japan or um, Hong Kong, we had that kind of around-the-clock communication across the globe in order to come up with the right solution for the client. So, And I think that kind of a global mindset triggered also the creativity that we had with the knowledge that we had across all markets. So I, I, I hope I answered your question. It was a kind of a long-winded <laughs> answer to your question. But I think you, you can teach creativity. Uh, you can at least create a framework for teaching creativity. Yeah. It's a great poet, Ezra Pond, said that a, long, a long-winded question and a long-winded answer are simply things that dissipate in the air. I can assure you, you didn't. Uh, I'm sure that is the kind of advice that people who fear risk but still want to put their toe in the water and see what happens listened to. We appreciate the expertise. That's the purpose of the program. In regard to uh, things of this sort, there's an ancient maxim that's always attached to gambling recently, uh, attached to poker playing, that one shouldn't fear risk, one shouldn't fear loss. Do you feel that's applicable also to the business world? Well, I mean, I, I think one should, whether it's in personal life or in business, uh, one should be willing to take calculated risk. Um, and with that, I, what I mean is that it has to be educated. Um, I mean, some people obviously are more risk averse and some people are more risk takers, but there is definitely room for taking risk uh, in one's life and in one's career, um, as long as it's smart and it's educated. And when you take a risk, sometimes it works in your favor and sometimes it doesn't. But what you're always trying to do is to create a um, asymmetric um, payoff, uh, if I may use some kind of finance finance, uh, like an option-like payoff where you protect your downside, but you have uh, unlimited or much higher upside. So, and and that's something that, I, frankly, I, I tell a lot of women who I've also mentored throughout my entire career, um, whether it was people at Morgan Stanley or outside of work, and now I'm actually very involved with a number of mentoring programs, um, and I do mentor a lot of women. That's one of the things I tell them, that you need to, because women tend to be a little, a little bit more conservative in terms of how they approach their, uh, especially their career, um, and my, my advice to them is, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to be able to take some calculated risk. Don't wait for someone to tap you on your shoulder for a new position. Ask for it because men do that all the time. And you are capable to 
to do it, just have more self-confidence. That relegates us to part of the concentration of this interview, Leah. What advice would you give to the young woman in the listening audience who has the acumen, the skills, the potential, and the drive, but simply does not know how to approach what is still essentially a male-dominated field? Right. Look, I mean, I, I think there are, I mean, I, I, have, I, I have a number of advice, and I think they all kind of interrelate with each other. First and foremost, I would tell any young woman, don't be afraid to be yourself. You do not have to emulate a man to be successful in this field. I never did that. In fact, because I was one of the very few women in my business, I was, and I was as good as the guy sitting to my right and to my left, and probably even better, um, I stood out. Uh, so I, I didn't have to compete with as, as many, as many people because I was one of the very few in my group. Um, so I, I think don't be afraid to be yourself. Don't, you know, you don't have to be, act like a man to be successful. Be your authentic self. But what you need to do is to build your brand. And one of the things that I did early on in my, in my career was to develop my expertise in an area and use that expertise to gain recognition from a broader audience. But then leverage that to move up. You don't want to also get pigeonholed in what you're an expert at. And I think that is sometimes a problem that women face because they become so good at it that they become the go-to person and they get stuck in that role. So what you want to be able to do is to use that brand, use that expertise to elevate yourself and move up to the next level. And don't be afraid to do that. My second advice is to advocate for yourself. Don't be able, don't be afraid to get credit for what you deserve. And people won't always notice what you've done. So you've got to kind of promote yourself. Men do it all the time. If you need to walk into your boss's office and tell him or her what you had just accomplished or what you just did, don't, don't be afraid to do that. They may not even know. So, and for you to expect that they will already know what you've accomplished is a mistake. So you've got to be there advocating for yourself. And what I, and there's also a partners in our language, is, uh, in, in finance, is to say ask for the order, meaning ask for what you deserve in terms of compensation and promotion. So don't be afraid for asking for that. And related to that, from a career perspective, don't be afraid to take calculated risks. You don't want to wait for someone to tap you on your shoulder for a new position. If you think you're ready, go and ask for it. Again, men do it all the time, even if they're not ready for it. And women oftentimes are ready, but they question themselves. So have confidence in your capability. And the other thing is, you know, it's not always a straight line up. There are ups and downs. You know, you can, you know, have a great run up, but then you get to a level where you may have to plateau and sometimes maybe even have to take a step down in order for you to move up again. So you need to be patient and strategic. And by that, I mean the same way that you can be drafting a strategic business plan for a business, you should also think of your career as a business plan. So you should kind of draw up a business plan of your career, like a five-year plan of what you want to do and where you want to be. And 
you know, you can update it regularly because things change all the time, but at least have a kind of a five-year time horizon as where you want to see yourself going and where you want yourself to be at in five years from now. Um, and along the same line, as you're kind of building this business plan, you also need to figure out who your network is, both internally and externally. You need mentors for people whom I call more like peers who can help you with giving you advice here and there. But equally importantly, you need what I call sponsors. And these are more senior people in the organization or at other organizations that can influence your career. And you want to stay in touch with them and help, you know, make sure that they, they understand your kind of business plan, they understand your career aspiration, and they can help you in that journey. And then last but not least, you want to create work-life balance. And the truth is that there, it's really hard to have a work-life balance. I, you know, I, I was I, I got married when I was um, at Morgan Stanley. I, I was, you know, already an officer. I got married. I have two beautiful children. One is uh, already in college, and the other one is going to college next year. So I understand. I had a, um, a very busy uh, career globally, traveling all the time. Uh, and so did my husband. So I think, you know, work-life balance um, is definitely necessary, but everyone needs to understand it, it's hard to have it. Uh, and for women especially, it's oftentimes triaging between, you know, making priority of your children or your home before your work and sometimes vice versa. And I think women face that more than men do. So um, and sometimes you cannot be the best at everything, and you just have to accept that. Um, I think one of the things that is important, and I would give anyone this advice, is to try to build the right support system at home, and that starts with your partner. You want to make sure that you have a partner who understands and respects your career aspirations and is supportive of you and shares responsibility in order to make your journey happen. So I think those are those are some of the advices I would give to any young woman who is uh, entering this this kind of line of business and frankly any line of business because uh, in this, in today's world uh, whether you're in finance or in fashion or media I think women face very similar issues. And 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 I would also say in in, in kind of concluding on that uh, on those um kind of advice list, I would say prioritize. You want to pick the three very important things that matter to you in your life. Don't overextend yourself because oftentimes us women, we have a problem saying no and we try to please everyone and so we take on a lot more on our plate that we can actually uh, deliver. So don't be afraid to say no. Pick a few things that you want to prioritize and you care about, and also pick one thing that makes you personally happy, and it's yours and yours only, whether it's going to your regular exercise classes or you're part of a book club or you have a philanthropic cause that is dear and near to your heart. Have something that is really just for yourself. Leah, when you use the term prioritize, there are those who will look at that term and infer that it means choice, cold, analytical, and positive. That's the way perhaps a man might look at it uh, in a male-dominated industry. 
Do you take the position, as Jermaine Greer, Gloria Steinem, and others have, that one can have it all, and prioritizing should infer more properly, not cold analytical choice, but simply saying, I'll do this while I still plan to do that. I can be an an analyst at Morgan Stanley, but I can also be a wife and mother. Do you feel that this idea of having it all is partly an American dream, or can I posit it as a reality? Look, I, I think you can have it all, but at different degrees. You cannot be working at Morgan Stanley, you know, 80 hours on a, on a, like on a extended basis and have two children at home and your husband and your family and your friends. Uh, you, something has to give somewhere. So as I mentioned, you may have to end up triaging, meaning you put, you have, you make three things your priorities. Let's say it's your, your job, your, your immediate family, and maybe a hobby or some philanthropic cause. And if you make those, and you have to be disciplined. So if you make those your priorities, you can focus on those things. But even then, if you have a sick child at home and you've got to rush to the hospital or to the doctor to take that child at home and you have a very important uh, transaction to do or business to do at work, or you have to travel to Europe for your for a business meeting, you may have to cancel that, or you may have to rearrange your schedule. And so that's why I think it's uh, it, it's a lot of pressure. I think it's a lot of uh, moments of guilty feeling, whether you're you know, not spending enough time at work and you're not giving it your 100%, or if you're not spending enough time at home, with your sick child, or you're not, you're not giving it 100%. So you will constantly feel that sense of guilt. But I think in the long term, it's going to work out. I think, and I think it's important to, as I said earlier, to have a system at home, a support system at home that you can, you know, rely on when when things get a little complicated. So having an understanding spouse or partner having, uh, you know, people, whether it's family or other help that can support you if you're, you are, you know, halfway across the world and you have a sick child at home. So I think uh, it, 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 it's, it's about planning. Uh, the thing, I think when you're doing your strategic plan, career plan, you should also make sure to include some of these challenges. Like any any strategic plan has its challenges and opportunities, so you've got to kind of factor those in. But I think, uh, again, a long-winded uh, way of answering your question is that you can in the long run, but in the sh- short term, uh, you probably have to do a lot of triaging and sacrificing one thing for another. You exhibit a strength of character and business acumen that is perhaps not usual. One hopes that it is, but one has to witness it first. There are quotations attributed to individuals in the civil rights movement. Uh, James Meredith at University of Mississippi said, Why can't I be average? Why do I have to stand out as the only African-American incoming graduate student? Do you feel that one should accept being average, accept trying something and succeeding, but not at the level one so chose? 
Um, I mean, I guess it's all relevant, uh, or it's sorry, it's all uh, it's all relative, not relevant. It um, it depends on how you define being an app, being average, um, or how you define being number one or being the top. Uh, so um, I don't, know, I have a hard time answering this question. Um, I just, I just think it really depends on the person. It depends on the situation. Um, I think for me, um, I, I never really compared myself to others. I always wanted to be the best I could. And that's what I teach my children too. And, you know, being number one, what does that mean? There's always somebody who's going to be better than you and somebody who's going to be worse than you in, in real life. So it is always trying to achieve the best you can given the cards that you're being dealt with. And that's how I would, um, how I would um, kind of answer that question. Do you feel that the toughness, I shall be honest, you've exhibited in your career are in the genes when you look at photos? Is that mom and dad? Well, I, I, I just like, you know, going back to nature versus nurture, I think obviously, uh, you know, where you come from has a lot to do with it, but also how you're being, um, um, you know, raised and your education and your upbringing, both at home and outside of home, are very important. Uh, as I mentioned to you, my parents both were very supportive of us growing up and making sure that they understood, you know, we understood that education and hard work and honesty and integrity were always very important, you know, they were the pillars of what we were brought up on, and that's what we have, I've tried to incorporate not only in my own personal life, but also trying to educate my children that those are really important standards that you cannot break. And if you do your best, if you have the highest level of integrity, if you work hard, it is, the rest of it is, you know, it's what's out there. So you make the best of it. And um, and I think uh, I think if you, you keep those standards, um, you would you would have a you know you would you would at least have a you would feel comfortable living the life that you do because you can always say I did the best I could. We live in a time where. Immigration has been castigated and criticized and made really into a political football. Do you feel, given your experience, given your background, and given to your your success, there is a book in you describing those experiences, that development? Have you ever considered putting your story and your business activities between the covers of such a text? You know, a number of people have asked me if I could ever uh, write a book about my life and my experience. Um, I, I'm honestly too humble, and so I, I think there are so many amazing stories out there that uh, have been written already or need to be written. Um, mine probably is not the most interesting one, um, but uh, I know I haven't really thought about um, writing a book. I don't know if, if I, as I age and I. I become more mature and more uh, experienced. I may consider writing a book then, but at this stage, I have not contemplated writing a book. Let's perhaps approach it from a different angle. An individual who is contacting you through a friend or a contact or personally and asking you for advice as to how to enter the market and succeed, 
What are the basics that you would share? You are mentoring. What would you say? What would you tell them? Um, are you referring to investing or as an investor, or are you talking about just entering kind of the finance world? Both, uh, inculcating both skills, in a sense, to invest and profit, one must enter into the game. How would you prepare that person, given experiential and given advice, verbally? How would you prepare them for the experience? I mean, just from a personal investing point of view, if somebody has never invested and wanted to become an investor um, based on their kind of what 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 they have uh, in terms of their financial needs. I mean, I, my first advice to them is understand what your investment goals are. Like you need to know what, first of all, your risk-return appetite is. And are you someone who is uh, going to use that investment as a source of income? Or are you using that in- investment as a um, from a more speculative purpose that you're looking for capital appreciation? Or is it both? So it's really kind of understanding what your investment goals are. And then if you really are not yourself, you don't have that expertise or exposure to investing, you want to make sure that you have a good investment advisor or advisors that can help you throughout that, that journey. And you want someone who is actually looking after you as a, as a client and your, your kind of your, your, um, your wellness as opposed to making sure that they get paid a lot so that selecting your advisor is going to be very important and also make sure that you have a diversified portfolio um, of investments. You don't want to be putting all of your eggs in one basket. So those are kind of like the very generic advice I would give to any investor if they have not any prior investment background. You spoke of the international nature of business, and we spoke of uh, the current wave of feminism. Much of your philanthropic work has been done with concentrations in certain parts of the world. What are your views on the potential for women business in areas like the Middle East? I'm sorry, what is your question about my philanthropic efforts uh, and focus on women and the Middle East, or are you talking about investing in those regions? We can correlate both uh, for the moment, if you would. Dealing with uh, women who have ambitions such as you have and talents that are comparable, what is your view of the potential for women in areas that are controversial like the Middle East? Well, I, I mean, obviously this whole uh, women's issues is a very topical issue, whether it's with the Me Too and Time's Up movements here and across the world, or whether it was, it was what's happening with women's rights uh, around the globe and including the Middle East. I, I think it's it's a very complicated issue, but, but I, I'm very happy that it's something that's been brought to the surface, uh, and it's very topical now, and Everybody, whether you know, they're kids in high school all the way to um, the older generation, are very much focused on that. So I, I, I remain optimistic, and I, I should remain so. I have two daughters. There's a lot going on in the world, and uh, there's also a lot going on in terms of women 
getting up and being active and being activist in this area. So this actually gives me hope and optimism. And we see that not just in in the, in the developed world or in the Western world, but you also see it in the Middle East. And um, unfortunately, you also see a lot of um, uh, situations where women activists or anyone who's activist on behalf of women are getting uh, persecuted in certain regions. But uh, I think uh, I am optimistic that things are changing um, and hopefully changing for the better. As the parent of two daughters and as a person who has fervent beliefs in gender equality, is politicalization the only solution you can foresee for women to become deeply involved in politics, particularly business women, women who have succeeded in the male sphere, is that something you have ever considered? Again, that's a question that many people have asked me um, if, if at some point I would like to run for office. And I have not yet, you know, I've, I've thought about it, but I'm, again, I'm not there yet. But I do see how important it is for women to be active in the political landscape. And I see how effective they can be. Um, just to give an example of uh, an amazing um, woman uh, who is in politics, she's the governor of uh, the state of Rhode Island. Uh, and I, I, I apologize, I can't remember her full name, but she is a woman who was extremely successful in the business world. And she's now the governor of uh, the state of Rhode Island. And she has created a lot of interesting private and public partnerships. Um, and also worked very closely with uh, Chris Paxton, who is the pre president of Brown, in, in improving um, the conditions in Rhode Island across the board, economic, political, uh, social, and otherwise. So I think women in politics make a lot of sense. Um, and I think we need we, we, we saw what happened with the midterm election. We, we, we're having a lot more... Uh, rep representations in in Congress and I th and and uh, in local politics and that's a, that's a great um, that's a great change and I hope to see more of that um, in the future. Do you feel that uh, in this country we overlabel activist movements, whether it be Rhode Island, California, or Mississippi? We tend to say left, right, socialist, capitalist, and so forth rather than saying that the world is a porridge and we just have to dip our fingers in and use what is useful? I feel like the, the, this country has become too politicized in, in using labels. I do agree with that. And I think when you look at it at the core, probably most people are in the middle or want to be in the middle, but they get pulled to the two corners or the two sides because of this politicization. 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 Sorry, I can't say the word proper, properly. Perfect. Uh, all right. Do you feel that the financial world has been overly politicized? Um, at the moment, and there, there were good reasons and bad reasons for it, but. Uh, you know, obviously during the, uh, the height of the Great 
financial crisis that that was a huge uh, problem or a, a huge issue. But um, you know, it's also understandable why it was. Dealing with some of the topics we've talked about, uh, perhaps to inspire those in the listening audience, can you, uh, even anonymously, one doesn't have to mention companies, can you describe successes that you've experienced that were the result of your efforts that left you both solidly on solid ground and also rather satisfied with your activity? Examples of success. I, well, I mean, I, I, what I can just say in general terms is that throughout my career, uh, and the longest one obviously being at, at Morgan Stanley, I, I, I felt like it was a very meritocratic state. And every time I was given or asked for an opportunity, um, and I was given that opportunity, I did really well. And as a result, I was compensated Fairly, whether it was in terms of you know pay or promotion, uh, and kind of giving me bigger platforms and leadership roles. So in that sense, I feel like you know I worked in, for a company that was very. Uh, I mean, I have, I did. I felt like I was reaping the benefit of my hard work uh, in a good way, and I was being recognized for that. But as I said earlier, it, it is it is a two way street. You have to, as 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 a woman especially, you really need to be vocal in terms of what you want and what you deserve. Um, and because if you don't, you just sit in the corner and do your work and you do it well, you may not get noticed. Uh, and that was one of the biggest advice I would give to women who worked with me or around me that you've got to speak up. Um, so I, I think that's that's key. Um, and yeah, and in other places uh, that I've worked with, I, I would I would just echo the same thing. I never felt like I was discriminated against, um, uh, and if I did a great job, I was being rewarded for it. I do do believe that there is still a glass ceiling, and it it really exists not just in finance, but it exists in across any kind of corporate world. You look at the statistics of women on um, uh, in the C-suite, or women on boards, or women in really senior executive roles. It's it's less than fifteen percent, if not less than ten percent. Um, so it, it's still it's still a struggle for women to kind of get through that glass ceiling. Um, and hopefully that will also change with some of these uh, uh, these. Um, kind of more activist role that women are playing in today's environment. We're at the point of having five minutes left in what has proven to be a rather interesting interview, to say the least. At this point, I'd love to ask, and we'll posit the question, Leah, 10 years from now, click your heels, make a wish. What do you hope to be doing It's actually a question I ask myself quite often, if not on a daily basis. Um, as uh, you may know, I'm right now 
very much focused on my philanthropic endeavors. Uh, and I, I'm engaged in many different efforts, uh, but perhaps too many. There, However, um, all of them are somehow related to three main themes that are extremely dear and near to my heart. And those are education, women, and Iran. So I'm very involved with Brown right now, where I'm the coach of the Women Leadership Council and uh, a member of the advisory board to the Middle East Studies Program. I'm on the uh, board of trustee of IIE, the Institute of International Education, uh, which basically uses higher education as a means to create a more peaceful world. Uh, we spend a lot of time with students and scholars in need, uh, including the Middle East and Iran, so that kind of brings me back to Iran. Uh, I'm also on the advisory board uh, and the chair of the mentoring program for IAWF New York chapter, and IAWF stands for the Iranian American Women Foundation. Um, so I'm very passionate about these three things, and I assume that in the future I will remain very connected in those, and whether I'm going to end up creating my own kind of organization or continue working with any and all of these organizations, I think those three kind of themes are going to be um, playing a very big part of my life. Uh, I'm also passionate about the art. I'm, uh, I'm a collector of contemporary art with a big focus on Iranian artists. Um, I'm also on the uh, visiting committee of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, ancient Near East um, Art Department. So, so a lot of kind of philanthropic um, kind of interest, and I think probably that's going to take a big chunk of my time. Uh, when I decide to fully retire from the business world, having said that, I'm currently pursuing a few, or, or at least exploring a few um, options on the business side, and some of them involve finance and some of them don't. So, again, to give you a, a long-winded answer, um, you know, I, I definitely want to remain active, not just in the business world, but also contribute to society through my philanthropic engagement with a focus on women, education, and Iran. Looking at the clock, we're within two minutes, but you touched on a topic that intrigues me no end. I personally am a devotee of Persian-Iranian film, it seems a nation of such incredible potential, a nation of poets. Do you, I would imagine, agree, and how would you feel we can bring this forward in the future? Look, as you mentioned, Iran is a country with a huge and deep culture and heritage, and arts and sciences and and education have always been a huge part of that culture. And you see that very live in today's world. So the Iranian artists, whether they are inside the country or outside of the country, are very active with beautiful um, work that express a variety of uh, things um, uh, and topics. And they're highly successful, and we just, uh, hope that they continue their work um, and they're being supported uh, globally by um, uh, all kinds of supporters, whether they're galleries or whether uh, audiences, uh, whether they're collectors. Um, 
So I think we, we, I really do hope that the work continues because they're, I think, adding a lot to to society and um, and especially to what what their view is uh, about you know their country and its place in the world. Well said. Uh, with those words, unfortunately, we have to bring to a close our conversation. Hopefully, uh, at your discretion, Leo, we can do it again when times have changed and things have changed and you've done different things along the way. It would be uh, our pleasure to entertain your opinions. Our guest has been Leia Kajavi. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>